I'm in Israel for a couple of weeks, uh, leading a history tour for our friends at Silah and scooping up some extra material for episodes in Season 2. So we've got a bit of a bonus for you this week. So many people liked our episode with John Lennox from Oxford. We decided to play the entire interview with some bonus stuff you haven't heard. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Every week, we'll be exploring some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're going to try and undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. John, you've had a long career in maths and science. Is this just because you have a math science brain and were attracted to what you were good at? Or is there a deeper love of this way of thinking about reality? That's quite difficult to say because looking back, I was first attracted to arithmetic simply because I was good at it. And at the little primary school I went to, I was known to be the only pupil who ever asked for extra homework, which I did on a regular basis. And I suppose that meant that I got rapidly interested in mathematics. But I wondered quite a bit because... I then had a brilliant languages teacher, so I got interested in grammar. I loved Latin grammar. And, of course, that relates to mathematics because pure mathematics is a compressed language. So gradually it filtered out that my main interest was there in mathematics. But why I concentrated on it in the end was simply the opportunity to go to Cambridge because I wanted to do electrical engineering. And the school headmaster told me I had a chance of getting into Cambridge, but only for maths, because they didn't have teachers who could teach physics and chemistry to an advanced enough level. So I took advice and took the chance. So I ended up at Cambridge doing maths. So that's the decision process. Your introduction to the clash between religion and science uh, was was pretty uh, confronting. A professor at Cambridge gave you a dressing down, I read in your new book, and said something like, you'll never excel in science if you keep this God business up. That's right. Can you tell us about that? He wasn't simply a professor, he was a Nobel Prize winner. And what happened was, there was a special scholar's dinner, and I sat beside him. I was placed there, I'd never met him before, nor had I ever met a Nobel Prize winner before. And I thought this is going to be very interesting because I can do my usual thing and play Socrates and ask him questions, which I did. But I noticed the nearer I got to the God question and his relation to the bigger issues of science and so on, the more uncomfortable he got. So being a kind Irishman, I backed off and he turned to his next neighbour. And that was it, as far as I was concerned. But at the end of the meal, we were just dispersing, and he said, Lennox, come to my room. And it just sounded a little bit threatening. You know, it wasn't really an invitation, it was a command. And I found myself a few minutes later in his room, and he'd invited, I can't remember who exactly, but two or three senior people, there are no students. And he sat me down, 
And as I recall it, they stood round and he said, Now, Lennox, do you want a career in science? And I said, Yes, sir. Well, he said, This evening then, in front of witnesses, you need to give up your naive belief in God. <laughs> Astonishing. I couldn't help reflecting subsequently that if he had been a Christian and I'd been an atheist, he would have been in trouble with the university authorities the next day. But he felt he could browbeat me, you see. And I managed to gather together enough presence of mind to say, I would like to know from you what it is that you can offer me that's better than what I've already got. So he immediately quoted Émile Bergson, of course expecting that I'd never heard of Émile Bergson, but then I'd read C.S. Lewis. And Émile Bergson turned out historically to be a very bad choice because he said late in life that he really wished he'd become a Catholic. But anyway, I said to this Nobel Prize winner, I said, look, if that's all you've got to offer me, I'll take the risk and stick with what I've got. It had a profound effect on me, and I remember resolving if ever I got the chance to be in any kind of academic position where I could talk about these things, that is the last thing I was going to do, is browbeat, but rather put arguments into the public space and let people decide. So it was, it was a seminal moment. <laughs> we often hear that the higher up in science someone goes, the less likely they are to be a religious believer. What do you make of that claim? Well, I think it's complex to answer it. The first way I would look at that is historically. Let's take Nobel Prize winners between 1900 and 2000. I'm told that over 65% of them believed in God. So that rather flows in the opposite direction. The survey that was done in light of trying to repeat the Luba uh, survey that was 70 or 80 years ago, still found that of active scientists in the USA, 40% believed in God, a personal God who answers prayer. So it may be true. In the academy, there certainly are fewer, and I haven't unfortunately read the, the recent report that I believe was commissioned by Richard Dawkins, no less. But I'm not sure that I agree. I mean, even if you've got one Nobel Prize winner, and currently we've got more than that, who believes in God, then that gives the lie to the fact that science and religion are essentially incompatible. Otherwise, they would all be atheists. There's a lovely footnote in your new book uh, that actually outlines the statistics. And it, it makes quite clear that, um, in fact, in physics and chemistry and peace, Nobel Prize winners are heavily populated by Christians. Yes. But when you get down to economics and literature, not so much. <laughs> no. Well, I, I rather hesitate to comment on that because, actually, I'm quite passionate about literature. But I think inevitably, because literature is somewhat nearer to philosophy than physics is, that you get all the Enlightenment background pouring in, which doesn't necessarily affect the hard sciences in particular. So I'm not surprised at that. You often make the point, and again in the new book, that the first modern scientists uh, were 
devoutly religious, Kepler, Faraday, even Galileo. That's right. Um, but couldn't someone respond But everyone was religious back then? Well, they could, but they'd be wrong. Uh, Dawkins did that to me on one occasion. And what interested me is, again, the historical thing. And I'm so glad I'm talking to a, a competent historian in you because you appreciate these things. You see... In the world at that time, there were other countries and empires than Western Europe. And the Chinese were developing, in particular, various technologies, the invention of gunpowder printing and all this kind of stuff. But the interesting thing was the attempt to show or to try to find out why the Chinese didn't stumble on the abstract sciences because they never did get there and there is some very famous work by his name escapes me just for a sec he was a chemist at Cambridge and a sinologist he was a genius at Mandarin all the rest of it and spent a lot of time in China and he was a neo-Marxist and for many years he tried to come up with a neo-Marxist answer to why the Chinese didn't come across abstract science. And in the end, he concluded, and he wrote it, it's most interesting stuff to read, that the only difference he could find was the fact that the Chinese lacked the idea of a creator who had created the universe to run on certain laws that we could decipher. So that's quite a remarkable bit of a discovery. And I pointed that out to Dawkins. I said, you're only talking about the West, so you're simply not correct. There is a counterexample that pushes it in the opposite direction. And on top of that, there is quite a number of very competent scientists, like Melvin Calvin, who won a Nobel Prize as well, who said as he researched this historically... He said the the real idea that drove forward modern science was something discovered, as he puts it, by the Jews centuries ago, millennia ago, that this is an intelligent creation. And that was the real reason that science accelerated. And that thesis is generally held by historians today with various nuances, but they stick to that, that there is a strong connection and an obvious one, because... Why would you believe science could be done? Well, the basic reason in the modern scientific period was the universe is created by an intelligence so we can follow his footprints. You make the fascinating comment in the new book that that I want you to tease out, that we must learn to distinguish between statements of science and statements by scientists. I think that's immensely important. Because Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, he has a wonderful statement long ago where he said, outside his or her field, the scientist is just as dumb as the next guy. And he's right, because it's very easy to try to use, in fact, abuse authority. So you take someone like Carl Sagan, who was very famous, and he did a a television series called Cosmos. And he started by saying, the universe is all that is, was, or ever shall be. Now, there's a 
scientist making a statement, but it's not a statement of science, it's a statement of his own atheistic belief. But unfortunately, the general public tend to accept these things. You take Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, who also was a genius, but in his book, The Grand Design, he says very near the beginning, philosophy is dead. Well, that's a statement by a scientist, but it's not a statement of science. And it is rendered ludicrous by the rest of his book, which is about what the philosophy of science. So I warn people, be very careful, because many of the statements which sound as if they are using science to get rid of God or doing no such thing, they're just assertions without evidence of atheistic worldview. Are you almost saying that scientists are the new priests? I'm saying that scientists are regarded by many people as the new priests. It's almost a fulfilment of what T.H. Huxley wanted to do around the time of Darwin's Origin of Species. He wanted a church scientific. He wanted churches changed into centres of admiration of the goddess Sophia and all this kind of thing. And I think that's absolutely right. Go to Hawking again in that book. Philosophy is dead. Well, what does he say next? Well, it's left to scientists to bear the torch of truth in this generation. Now, that is scientism, the notion that science is the only way to truth. But there you are. Priests are normally regarded as people with some handle on truth and there is a lot of pressure in the public space to adopt this view. Obviously science can't explain everything but it explains enough doesn't it for thoughtful people to think there's not much room for God. Well there is enough for people to think that but it's wrong-headed thinking and I want to weigh into that notion Certainly, I admit, uh, not only admit, I, I welcome it. Science has done marvels in producing the technology that we all enjoy and so on. But when you start to ask the bigger question, where does science fit into the bigger picture, you suddenly run up against the fact that science cannot answer the really big questions. What I mean by that is, Sir Peter Medawar, again a Nobel Prize winner who worked here in Oxford, he made it very clear by stating that it's obvious that science is limited. It can't even answer what he called Karl Popper's questions, but they're really the questions of a child, as he put it. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is the meaning of life? And Einstein pointed out, and Feynman agreed with him, incidentally, that you can talk about the ethical foundations of science, but you cannot talk about the scientific foundations of ethics. So there's a whole area. Let me put it even more bluntly. If science is the only way to truth, then you'd have to close all, half the faculties in every university in the world, including yours, Faculty of Ancient History. Literature would go, languages would go, philosophy would go, theology would go. And that's just sheer nonsense. I think some people can, I almost said deceive themselves into thinking that science will keep them going, but they're usually people who are having a very good life and they're not hitting the big existential problems of existence where science doesn't really help very much unless it gives you a medical solution to your immediate problem. 
I just want to try to get across to people that science is wonderful, but actually a lot of its success is due to the fact that it only attempts to answer a limited number of questions. But there are lots more questions out there, particularly the why questions of purpose. And it's very easy to adopt Dawkins' attitude to say these questions are meaningless, but they're not meaningless. People ask them and have done for centuries. And in fact, they tend to be more important than the how questions. But even leaving aside the existential questions, which are you know, obviously important, um, couldn't it be said that science can fully explain the material universe? No, I don't think it can be said. You see, that raises the question, what do you mean by science explains something? And I, in my days at school, I was taught the law of gravitation and I used to enjoy teaching it to students and deducing the elliptical orbits of the planets from it. But what I didn't get clear at school was that the thing the law of gravity didn't explain was gravity. And Newton realised it. Later, when I read Newton, I saw the famous statement, non fingo hypothesi, I do not make hypotheses. That is, I'm not pretending to tell you what gravity is. I can give you a wonderful mathematical equation that you can work out the behaviour of heavy bodies in motion relative to each other under gravity, but I don't know what it is. And therefore... A scientific explanation is rarely comprehensive, even within science, to go no further. And a lot of this whole topic revolves around what do you mean by explanation? And in the book, I explain it very simply, in the hope that even some professors can understand it, um, by asking the question that you get asked at school, why is the water boiling? Well, because the atoms of the molecules of water are being heated up by the Bunsen burner and they're getting agitated and moving faster and faster, and that's why it's boiling. But equally well, I can say it's boiling because I want a cup of tea. And that's very simple, but it indicates that there are two levels of explanation. They don't conflict, they don't compete. They complement. And interestingly enough, people have been enjoying tea for millennia before they knew anything about heat transfer and heat equations. The point being that when you say explain this, the scientific explanation is usually incomplete and it usually doesn't deal with the most important aspect of it. And that's why... All I simply want to do is say say scientific explanation is marvellous, but be careful. It's not exhaustive. And in fact, by simply sticking with it, you may be missing a far bigger answer to a far bigger question. Take a break from your high-paced life with Silah. Silah is a Hebrew word often associated with an intentional pause. And Silah offers travel experiences for Christians and doubters to go deeper. Tour Israel and walk where Jesus walked. Or travel through Europe, discovering the West's Christian heritage and history. 
I use Selah, I really do. That's not just an ad thing, and I love them. Visit myselah.com.au. That's my s e l a h.com.au. Hey, while I've got you, I want to ask a favor. Undeceptions is a new podcast, and it really helps other people find us if you rate and review us on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there so you don't miss an episode. Can I ask you straight up, what do you think are the most compelling reasons for believing in a creator broadly understood, not even Christian theism? Oh, yes, broadly understood. I would say the very fact that you can do science, if you want to keep away from religious documents, because, you see, go back to what you said earlier. This conviction that there was a creator is arguably, historically, the motor that drove the rise of science. Now, in the scientific world, in which I've worked for most of my life, they're a mixture of people, of course. There are many atheists, agnostics, people of other religions, but they have in common that they believe that the universe is rationally intelligible. It's accessible, at least in part, by the human mind. And I raise the question... Why would you believe that? Now, the early pioneers with Galileo, Newton and Kepler and so on, they had their rationale. They believed in a creator. But absent a creator, and I have a lot of fun with some of my colleagues on this topic, you see, I say to them, what do you do science with? And they often say, well, they rarely say their mind because they don't believe in the mind as distinct from the brain. I let that pass. Say, okay, you do your brain. Tell me about your brain. What's a brief history of the brain? Well, the brain is the end result of a mindless, unguided, natural process. And I just look at that and I say, and you trust it? Really? And then I say, tell me honestly. If you knew that your computer that you use every day was the end product of a mindless, to quote your reasoning, was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it or use it? I've asked many people that, and I've always got the question, no. And then I say, I see you have a problem. And you see, it seems to me, therefore, that the creator concept is has much greater explanatory power than the mindless, unguided process concept. Now, the point is that contemporary scientists, whether they're believers in God or not, they believe that science can be done. What I'm claiming, when you push, you find they don't have any real evidence base for that belief. But they do it anyway, because they see the results of the sciences. But... That's talking about the way science works. If you come to what belief reasons we could have for believing in a creator when it comes to the results of science, as distinct from the philosophy of science, I was asked to face up to one of our famous professors of philosophy here, who's, who's an atheist, and he wanted me to talk to about a hundred of his students, most of whom were atheists. And he said, I hope you're going to use your best argument. 
for theism. Oh, I said, what is that? I said, I'd like you to tell me so that I could use it. And I promise you, if you tell me, I will use it. Well, he said, the be- if I were ever to become a theist, he said, I think the thing that would convince me most is fine-tuning. I said, are you serious? He said, absolutely serious. He said, there is no real solution to the problem with which the fine-tuning of the fundamental of constants of nature pushes you, you see. And uh, I found that intriguing. I did use the argument, but I used many other arguments as well. I think it's a good argument because what it connects with is if you turn to the biblical story, which claims that God created the universe with a purpose, and to put it in scientific terms, the purpose is of sustaining carbon-based life. This is what the astrophysicists say about the fine-tuning of nature. So there's a convergence, at least at this stage. So those are some of the arguments, but there are many more. Do you think there's anything to the response to all of that, that positing a creator just moves the explanation back one, and we're going to then have to ask, but who made the creator? Yes, I I think there is an absolutely trivial (laughs) amount of uh, weight to that. But it's a very silly response, if I might be honest. Because if you ask who created the creator, philosophically what you're doing is asking, this sounds a curious descriptor of it, a complex question. It's complex not in its formulation, but in what it conceals. If you ask me what or who created X, I immediately know that X is in the category of the created. Who or what created God? You're saying God is created. But you see, first of all, created gods are a delusion, to go back to Dawkins' terminology. We usually call them idols. And the notion that there could be an eternal God is not addressed by the question. Once you say, who created God, you're immediately assuming that there's no such thing as an eternal God. So you're not talking about the biblical God. And you'll have to have a lot stronger evidence than that. But there's another point to be made, and you hinted at it. Do the questions go back forever? And the answer is no on either side. You see... My atheist friends, well, they used to go back to mass energy or the Big Bang, and then they stopped there. That was where the laws of nature broke down. Now they tend to go a little bit further in several different directions. They go back, well, the most common thing these days is they go back to nothing, a universe that creates itself from nothing. Well, I have a lot of things to say about nothing in that sense, because it turns out in every case that nothing is not the absence of anything. It's a quantum vacuum, and it certainly isn't nothing. With particles popping in and out of existence. That is exactly right. I got the opportunity, actually, to do a debate in no less than the Harvard-MIT Faculty Club. And my debating partner was Alan Guth, who's the father of the theory of inflation. And I warned him in advance that if you choose a topic... The topic was God and inflation, you see. I said what he'll do is give you a seminar on his work 
And that's exactly what he did. He's a very nice chap. So I took an opportunity to ask the first question, which I don't usually do. I said, Alan, tell me, out there in the public, there's much ado about nothing. And when you, as an astrophysicist, use the term nothing, do you mean the normal, ordinary, philosophical sense of the word absence of anything? He said, no, we do not. And I said, thank you very much. And they haven't solved the Leibniz soul problem. Why is there something rather than nothing? You see, to put it more accurately, I think it's important to say from the biblical perspective, the universe is made out of nothing physical. It's not made out of nothing. Its source is God, who is not physical, but is spirit. But that's a matter for further exploration elsewhere. I have atheist friends who like to point out that atheism is the neutral position since it basically just uh, fails to find positive reasons to believe in God. You're not so sanguine about the neutrality of atheism, are you? Oh, I don't think it's neutral at all. But it's neutral in one sense, which they think they can get away with. Ah, theos. There is no God. So what's the big deal? And uh, to take Dawkins as an example... The God delusion is not a one-page document saying there is no God. It's about 400 pages giving you the what I would call the positive flip side of atheism, which is the philosophy of naturalism. So I don't buy into that, that it's no big deal. And certainly I don't buy into the idea that it's neutral. Everybody has a worldview. And roughly speaking, very roughly speaking, people either are somewhere in the theistic spectrum, somewhere in the atheistic spectrum, or somewhere in the pantheistic spectrum with perhaps the relativists, but most of them belong to one of those three anyway. So I just want to say that there is a table at which every worldview is a right to sit and a right to argue its case. And the case for atheism is not simply saying, well, it just simply means not believing in God. Well, what's the evidence that there's no God? And they want to give you that evidence. So they don't really believe what they say. You've talked a lot about um, mathematics and rationality and uh, the laws of nature and all that sort of thing. Isn't all of that a little bit at odds with believing in miracles? Because I know you're also a miracle believer. Um, I mean, even if there is a rational mind behind the universe... Isn't that at odds with these miracles that break the rationality of the universe? Well, it could be at odds with some claims for miracles. I hope I'm not gullible and believing every claim for miracles, like weeping statues and all this kind of stuff. But the basic issue behind your question goes back essentially to David Hume, but not really because it was raised long before him that miracles are violations of the laws of nature and therefore we can't, in the end, really believe in them. Well, I reject that descriptor. And it's interesting that in late life I was granted an interview with Anthony Flew, who was Hume's great interpreter and the Dawkins of his day, actually. And I asked Anthony Flew, what about the argument against miracles? Anthony Flew said, my books were wrong and I'd have to rewrite them and I'll never get the chance. It was a very honest statement. And I think the way to see that Hume was wrong, well, he was wrong on many things, 
It was interesting. He talked about miracles being violations of the laws of nature because Hume didn't really believe in cause and effect. So he couldn't set up a law of nature. But leaving that aside, this idea of violation of a law fits much more easily into the realm of jurisprudence. You know, in America, you see the signs on the side of the road. Um, if you park illegally, violators will be towed. And I think Lewis has got it absolutely right to show that the problem lies in two concepts of law. One is the mathematical concept, the other is the legal concept. And he tells this lovely little analogy to illustrate it. He says, if I'm in a hotel and I put £100 in the drawer on the first night and 100 on the second night... So 100 plus 100 is 200. And on the third morning I wake up and there's 50 pounds in the drawer. What do I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of England? Well, of course, I conclude the laws of England have been broken. But why do I conclude that? Because the laws of mathematics have not been broken. And the reason I recognise, and here you can extrapolate to a much bigger scene, my mistake was to think that the drawer was a closed system of cause and effect and therefore there's nothing outside it that could come in and feed something in or take something out. I was wrong. And mathematics cannot say to the thief, stop, 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 you're about to break the laws of arithmetic. That's absurd. It's our knowledge of the laws of arithmetic, and in the more general sense, it's our knowledge of the laws of nature that enable us to recognize a claimant for miracle. If you didn't know that dead bodies stayed in the ground, well, the resurrection of Jesus would be no big deal. But the point is, in the, the world of the New Testament 20 centuries ago, they knew the relevant laws of nature, and that's why they recognize it as a miracle. So Hume is multiply wrong, I think. Uh, and therefore, people say uh, today that science and miracles clash. No, science can tell you nothing, in a way plus or minus, although you have to be careful with that. If there is a God who created the universe and has it running on certain recognizable laws, He's not constrained by them. He's not a prisoner of them. He can feed a new and a special event in. And our knowledge of the laws will help us recognize that. So you need both things. You need a universe that does run on laws in order to recognize the hand of God when he gets involved. So you I don't your, see a problem here. You end your book uh, with a pretty explicit call for the reader to explore Jesus Christ, the life, death and resurrection. Um, is this because you're just a devout Christian who couldn't help himself? Or do you see a genuine intellectual connection between the science of your book and that ending? Oh, I see a, a definite connection. Because, interestingly enough, you've made the bridge, you see, by asking me about miracles. Because Christianity is based on some central miracles. The biggest one is, of course, what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle, the claim that God becomes human. And once you begin to 
investigate something that is history-specific and something that is existentially specific, like Christianity, then you and myself, as I hope a thinking person, has got to face the intellectual implications of this. You can't dodge them. And it's not because I'm an enthusiastic Christian who can't help himself. It's because I'm an enthusiastic Christian who sees an intimate connection with the God who reveals himself in the universe and, if you like, in the fact that we can do science with the God that reveals himself in a history-specific dimension and, in particular, in Jesus Christ. And what we have to do here is to realise that science and rationality are not coextensive. History is a rational discipline. And clearly, we cannot apply the normal inductive method on the resurrection of Jesus. You can't repeat it in the lab to see what happens. But we can use a very powerful method that all historians and legal people use, and that is inference the best explanation, and ask ourselves, what is, where does the rational evidence of history point? Which is why I feel that your discipline is immensely important, because the trouble is with many scientists, once they meet the historical claims, they just dismiss them as if history had no rational discipline to itself. And that gets me very irritated. So the end of that book was really written to answer a question that I get asked more and more. You're a scientist. You believe in testability. Well, the answer to that is twofold. One, yes, I do for things that can be testable. But a lot of science has to infer to the best explanation because you cannot repeat the history of the universe to see what happens, for example. Can you test Christianity? Well, what would that mean? It would mean testing historically the issue of the resurrection. Is there historical evidence for it? And I think that there is, but that's another story. But then, can you test it experientially? And the way I approach that is simply to observe that Jesus makes fundamental claims, truth claims. And he says that if people trust him and as Lord and Saviour, then they will receive certain things. One of them is peace. Now, most people know whether they've got peace or not. They will receive a new life. They will receive a new power. They will receive forgiveness. And that's very meaningful to people. And the way I approach this is just to say, look, whatever you make of this, I meet people, and they're in a mess, basically. They may be drug-dependent, suicidal students, etc., uh, etc. Et they're utterly miserable. And then you meet them six months later, and they're totally changed. And you say, what happened to you? And they say something like, I became a Christian, or I met Jesus, or I got converted. They may use very different language. But when you see that again and again you're tempted to put two and two and make four and say, look, there's actual evidence in people's transformed lives that this is true. And from where I sit, the proof of the puddings and the eating, if that were not happening, then I'd be sceptical of the whole thing. So it's a cumulative argument, intellectual arguments, arguments from science, but also existential arguments and historical arguments. And that 
gives a full-orbed set of reasons for believing that Christianity is true. Final question. This podcast is called Undeceptions. What do you think is the greatest myth out there about science and religion? And can you please undeceive us? I think the greatest myth is that they are essentially in conflict. And that's simply true, as I've argued from the history of science. If they were in conflict, then uh, Newton probably wouldn't have given us anything, nor Kepler, nor Galileo. It is a huge myth. And it comes about, I think, from a deep failure to see that the God explanation and the science explanation don't compete. I often say, look, God no more competes with scientific explanations, true scientific explanations for how the universe works, than Henry Ford competes with the law of combustion, internal combustion, as an explanation for the motor car. You need both. And what I, what the great myth has been set about is that the scientific explanation is enough. No, it is not enough, even within science. We'll return to our normal format in a fortnight, but next week we're going to drill down even deeper with the wonderful Professor Teresa Morgan from Oxford. Hey, if you've got questions about this or other episodes, I'd love to hear them, and in a future episode I'll try and answer them. Leave your question as a voicemail by calling 02-9870-5678. 02-9870-5678. Or head to undeceptions.com. While you're there, check out everything related to this podcast and sign up for the Undeceptions newsletter to get access to bonus content and plenty more from each episode. See ya. See ya.